0: Before we start let's pray. Dear heavenly father we thank you that uh, although we we've been reading about people who have um, who have long died lord that the accounts of them is your word and your word is alive because you are alive. We do pray now lord that um, uh, this passage will be made clear and that uh, we will be helped to see what it has for us to be taught from, both those who who are unbelievers, who do not know what it is to have their sins forgiven, and also as believers, Lord, that we'll be helped in our daily walk with you, that we will be, um, walk closer, that we'll have more um, desire and zeal in our hearts. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, it doesn't seem that long since... Um, Ian was, our pastor was speaking about uh, Elisha, starting off with, his, with the bears, uh, taking over from Elijah, you haven't seen that many weeks ago. And here we are now, coming in to, as it says here, Elisha's last days. And like Elijah, his ministry was to the northern kingdom, Israel. It's split from Judah, as uh, our pastor said this morning, uh, the uh, the two tribes of Judah and Benjamin formed Judah, and the rest became the northern kingdom known as israel and there 's an, an expression that you read a couple of times in uh, in that chapter that we read a uh, verse um, that that crops up time and time again um, in for instance in uh, 2 Kings chapter 13 verse 2, talking about Jehoaz, that he did evil in the sight of the Lord, followed the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, who had made Israel sin, he did not depart from them. Um, Jeroboam was the first king of, uh, of Israel, of this divided now northern kingdom, he was the first king. And there were many uh, that followed in his wake. Jehu, Nadab, Basha, Ella, Zimri, Omri, Ahab, many more. And the description of them all is that verse that I've just read out to you. That they followed on the example, the bad example of that first king, Jeroboam. They followed in his ways. And to fully understand that... Um, I think what you, you, you need to be able to sort of understand is that when Jeroboam took over uh, the northern kingdom, he, he, he was keen that the people in Israel didn't go to Jerusalem to worship the true God. And he set up his own sort of shrines initially, I suppose, with some um, understanding that, um, that there may be worship in the living God. But very soon... That changed and it became sites, uh, pagan sites and various idols. And of course Jezebel and with Ahab propagated particularly worship of Baal. And as a result, our pastor said this morning that that it was almost not regarded, the people who were there as being... the the people of God, although we know from um, Elijah's time that there were 7,000 believers at his time still in that land. But what tended to happen to them was that they were overcome and they were beaten by the likes of Syria and Assyria, and some of them were, were taken away and settled in other lands. Uh, and they then took up the religions and the beliefs of other lands. Or what also happened is that the Assyrians and Syrians, they, they started living in the area of the Israel, the northern kingdom, and brought their own gods. And so very quickly, it became just like the pagan nations are, are around yeah. it. So there was that trend set by Jeroboam. And basically, the only one that's given any credit of the kings of Israel was Jehu. And that was because he was used by God to, um, to take away the kingdom of Ahab. But even he was seen as a wicked king. All the kings of Israel were wicked and followed pagan idols. Um, in the case of Judah, there were, were, there were some, obviously, that were very wicked. But there were some that we well know, like Josiah, Hezekiah, that were godly kings. And that's why that um, the people of Judah looked down on people who lived in the northern kingdom. And that's why the, the, the power of the parable of the good Samaritan was so strong, because the, 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 the people that Jesus was speaking to had such a low view of the Samaritans, those who lived in the northern kingdom. So in chapter 13... I'm going to uh, look at, made it into three divisions. We're first of all going to look at God's patience. We're then going to look at God's power. And then last of all, so I ran out of peas and I couldn't think of one to do, we'd look at um, God's prophet. We'll have final words on Elijah. So let's first of all then look at God's patience and we also see his, his sovereignty. If you turn to uh Two Kings chapter ten verse thirty mentioned about Jehu, who um, was uh, uh, used by God against the house of Ahab, as instrument of God's righteousness. Even though Jehu himself was not a believer, but Two Kings chapter ten verse thirty says, and the Lord said to Jehu, because you've done well in doing what is right in my sight, and have done to the house of Ahab all that was in my heart, your son shall sit on the throne. Of Israel to the fourth generation. Sons being descendants. And the first of those was Jehoaz. And then the second one was Joash or Jehoash. um, As the one who comes later on to see Elisha. So to see God's sovereignty. You see there was unlike in Judah. There was no royal line. There was no Davidic line. That they all the kings came from. In the northern kingdom, in Israel, it was full of political intrigue. And there was a series of assassinations and coups. Um, and, and so it was the sign of God's sovereignty that despite the, all this sort of wickedness, that God, God has, was in control. And he was able to say for four generations that uh, of Jehu would, would, uh, would sit on the throne of the king of Israel. So, God was sovereign, um, but we see also God's patience. And you may have been quite surprised at this when we we read this earlier. Despite their wickedness, despite the rejection of of God by the the kings, and uh, and it's we, so there's a a national responsibility there, um, despite their idol worship, God stuck with them. It says a little bit later on, doesn't it, why that was the case. It says in verse 23, but the Lord was gracious to them, had compassion on them, and regarded them because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and would not yet destroy them or cast them from his presence. So in God's eyes, they were still his people, although as we've seen, they very much were mixed in with the pagan people around. So God was patient for them. Uh, and also, uh, um, it's, it's often said as well, that of course there were believers at that time. There were 7,000 in Elijah's day. And there's no reason to believe that the figure would be much different um, at the time that we're talking about now. And this led then to patience with this disobedient king. Um, you see in verse 4, uh, Jehoaz pleaded with the Lord, and the Lord listened to him. The Lord, listen to this, this uh, wicked king. For he saw the oppression of Israel because the king of Syria oppressed them. And then in the next verse, the Lord gave Israel a deliverer so that they escaped from under the hands of the Syrians. And the children of Israel dwelt in their tents as before. So life returned to normal during that period. We don't know who the deliverer was. Uh, people have... Uh, that's what the Bible doesn't say and we should, where the Bible is signed on that issue, so, so should we. But the point was that God was gracious to them. God showed grace to them despite their wickedness and their evil. It says that God uh, listened to Jehoiás and But it didn't change them. What Israel was asking for was that they wanted a change of their circumstances. They wanted a change in their situation. I.e., they wanted the Syrians to get off their backs and not uh, bother them as much. And God gave them that change in circumstance. But there was no change in themselves. And isn't that so true today? When people often pray, they want a situation to change. They want, um, but they don't want any change in themselves. They still, it says in verse 6, nevertheless they did not depart from the sins of the house of Jeroboam had made Israel sin, but walked in them, and the wooden image also remained in Samaria. There were still idols, there were still pagan shrines, still rejection of the true and living God. And despite God's patience, they were still disobedient with him. There was a book out in, um, in the 40s that was made into a film. And the book was called Mildred Pierce. And this book was about uh, a woman who brought up her daughter on her own. And she'd had a rough life, this woman... And so she was determined that her daughter wouldn't have a similarly difficult life like she did. So she'd, she worked day and night, um, gave her the best schooling, um, as best house as she could, environment, etc. But then, when her daughter grew up, she started mixing with these people in this posh school. And she didn't want to know her mum at all. And she wouldn't bring people back because she was ashamed of her mum. And when, pe- when that film came out, they said, "Oh, people wouldn't be like that. People wouldn't be as cold and callous and as cruel as that. But this is what the people here did. God listened to them. God sent them a deliverer. God showered them with blessings, but they rejected him, they were ashamed of him. And maybe it's true to some here this evening, the blessings that God has given you, your life, your comforts, the things that you've given, but you reject him. You won't have anything to do with him. You'd be ashamed if people found out that you'd gone to church this evening. God's patience. But you see, if we read a little bit further on, God did eventually judge and punish them. Verse 7, for he reduced their army. He made them impotent. He left of the army of Jehoahaz only 50 horsemen, 10 chariots and 10,000 foot soldiers. For the king of Syria destroyed them and made them like the dust at threshing. God's patience should never be seen as weakness. He is sovereign. He holds the fate of nations in his hands. He holds our eternity in his hands. Our days are in his hands. There will be a judgment. For those here this this evening who are still estranged from God, still do not know the gift of forgiveness of their sin, and peace with God, the promise of heaven, he will be patient with you, that there will be a judgment. So we looked at God's patience. Let's now move on to God's power. And we now come, that uh, we'll look at verses 10 to 19, and then a few verses, 22 to 25 at the end. We now come to his last days. He's been silent for a few chapters Uh, Biblical scholars say that 45 years, he's off the pages of of Scripture. But we're left in no doubt in his state, aren't we? It says in uh, verse uh, 14 that um, Elisha had become sick with the illness of which he would die. He was sick with the illness of which he would die. But in a state of of sickness, um, of not having long to live, There was a knock at the door and he was to have a royal visitor. Um, And this was uh, Jehoiaz's son, Joash, who also, from verse 11, that verse that crops up so often in two kings. He also did evil in the sight of the Lord, did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel sin, but walked in them. So there's just three points before we, we look at the, the exchange, the, the conversation between um, Elisha and King Joash. The first thing is, despite him being ungodly, he comes to Elisha in times of trouble. Not only does he come to him in um, times of trouble, he, he, he comes weeping. Says in verse fourteen, he wept over his face, and he calls him father, father. He was genuinely upset, and and you know, not not to be cynical uh, about about this man. There was obviously some good, uh, and uh, some heartfelt care in um, in the king's sort of heart. He wasn't completely wicked, and isn't that true of those who are um, who who worship? Other gods who are not believers, you know, they 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 sometimes um, show great care. Often, out outshine us in their good works. He was genuinely upset, but but also you have to accept that um, even if he was genuine, the reason that he was upset, or particularly upset, was that. Elisha was of national importance. Uh, Graham spoke about um, his influence in protecting Israel. And there's one or two other references to that. And what Joash was thinking, things are pretty bad at the moment. If Elisha dies, they're going to get worse. He, He saw, he came to him, not so much possibly he may have done because he was a friend of Elisha. But he saw that Elisha was a friend of God. He was a representative of God. And isn't that so often people come, don't they, to you sometimes? And you know that they have no interest in the things of God. And they ask you to pray for it? I was reminded of when I was a student. And um, there was um, five of us uh, who got this flat for the final year. And it was a real ragbag of group of us, really. Uh, but two of us were Christians And the other three, they really um, were not interested and quite sort of anti in in some ways. But when we got the flat, there was one or two problems and it looked as if it might slip through our fingers. And uh, two of the unbelievers came up to Clive and I, uh, the other uh, believer, and uh, they asked us to pray for it, that it would all go through okay. And I think that, was, that, that absolutely amazed us, that uh, they didn't think much of God at all, but they were quite willing when he thought that their own self-interest might be affected. They thought, well, we'll, we'll at least ask him to, to, to pray for us. And this uh, possibly is what was, was here, that uh, he was worried about what was going to happen to the country. That's the first thing. I think the second thing, uh, as I said in verses uh, 14, um, if you read verse 14, the most you observant of you, it says, Joash, the king of Israel, came down to him, went over his face. And what did he say? He said, oh, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and their horsemen. And if you turn back to the beginning of 2 Kings, 2 Kings chapter 2, I think, that's exactly what Elisha said when Elijah was just about to go up to heaven Um'm not really sure uh, other than the fact that it was exactly the same thing, but it shows really that the king recognized elisha's worth as he was near to death, as I said he called him father uh, and may have even thought that elisha would likewise like elijah uh, go ascend into heaven um he wouldn't He wouldn't have, but as one commentator says when A believer is in the the last throes of of earthly life. He may look ill. He may look sick of an illness which is about to die. But he's about to enter um, heaven with the angels. So that's the second thing. The third one is that despite, obviously, Elisha's weakness, he was terminal, didn't have long to live um, before he was to shuffle this mortal coil, as is often said, and he was in the presence of the king, he didn't count out to the king, did he? He was in control of this exchange. He told the king what to do. And I, as I was reading this, I thought, this is a, an important lesson for us to learn today, particularly as we're doing these things on a Wednesday night, um, about some of the pressures... <laughs> Um, as Christians that we're under, is that it's easy to see ourselves on the back foot and vulnerable. And it is. um, But we've got to remember we have our God behind us. We have his means of grace. We have prayer. We have his word. We have fellowship, one with another, and that's exactly what Elisha had despite his physical vulnerability, his weakness. And let's not forget that as we uh, feel often overwhelmed by some of the, the changes that are going on and some of the pressures that we're put under. But let's, let's now look at this exchange, a very interesting exchange isn't it, between um, Elisha and King Johash. And, the, there's, there's, there's two commands here that Elisha is making to the king. First of all, in verses 15 and 17, Elisha said to the king, "Take a bow and some arrows." So he took himself a bow and some arrows. Again, he's obedient as need to shows you who's in control. And he said, "Open the east window," and he opened it. Then Elisha said, "Shoot," and he shot. And he said. The arrow of the Lord's deliverance and the arrow of deliverance from Syria. For you must strike the Syrians at Afek till you have destroyed them. There's two commands of the king. The first one, as we've just read, is that you've got to take your bow and arrow and shoot one of the arrows out the window. And this represented for Israel deliverance from Syria. And uh, what's in particularly important? on this is that um, in verse 16 it says put your hand on the boat so he put his hand on it and Elisha put his hands on the king's hands and that's Elisha as a representative of God he was that was a signal to the king that this is what God would ordain it might look pretty hopeless but our God is a powerful God he's a patient God And he's a God of promises. And God would promise that they would have deliverance from Syria. So that was the first task. And he did that. Did that perfectly okay. So he was going to have deliverance from Syria. Now the second part is verse 18 and 19. The second part of the command. Let's read that. It said, then Elisha said, take the arrows. So he took them. Again, obedience. That's where it stops unfortunately. And he said to the king of Israel, strike the ground. So he struck three times and stopped. What this actually means is that he didn't say, pick a few arrows up and batter the ground with them. It meant shoot the arrows into the ground one by one. So it says in man, um, strike the ground. So he struck three times and stopped. And then it says, the man of God was angry with him and said, you should have struck five or six times. Then you'd have struck Syria till you had destroyed it. But now you will strike Syria only three times. Now what can that possibly mean? Now why why is that? Perhaps you might think to yourself, well how was Joash supposed to know how many arrows he was supposed to uh, discharge from the bow into the ground? Perhaps Joash couldn't see the point of it. And perhaps he just did a few to keep Elisha happy. You know, do this, I'll shoot a few. But it didn't work, did it? Didn't keep him happy. In fact, it angered Elisha. Now, why? Well, it's quite clear that this was a, and it's often used, isn't it, pictures, and Jesus uses pictures and illustrations in his own ministry. This was a, a test, a pictorial test of Joash's obedience to God. And as such, it showed up his character, his lack of faith, and his lack of reliance on God. See, the first part was a general promise of deliverance by defeating the Syrians. And he did that right. He shot the arrow out the window. And that was a promise of deliverance. The second part was a test. For Joash, of how believing, how committed, and how persevering he would be in carrying out God's victory. See, he probably thought to himself, oh, deliverance, arrow through the window, got deliverance of Syria, from Syria, that'll do me nicely. I'll do with that, I'll make do with that. He wasn't bothered about any more than that he thought that would just it was just like a a sort of a make do ah that will do me and in fact as I said before if you compare verse 19 at the end where it says now you will strike Syria only three times with verse 25 three times right at the end of the verse three times Joash defeated him and recaptured the cities of Israel he only had partial deliverance if he'd have discharged five or six of those arrows, God would have given him complete deliverance. Now, Joash was not a believer. We know that. None of the kings of Israel were believers. But there are important lessons that we can learn and apply to ourselves as believers from this exchange between Elisha and Joash. You see, when we become Christians, when we confess the Lord Jesus Christ as our Saviour, we put our trust in Him, it's the beginning of our Christian walk. It's the beginning of our new birth through Christ. It's the beginning of God's grace in our lives. We're delivered from the clutches of Satan. That was the first part. But the second part for us as Christians is how are we living that Christian life? Are we giving ourselves fully to Christ? You see, I said before that the attitude of, of Joash was, yeah, deliverance, that'll do me. I'm quite happy with that. No more, need, you know, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll defeat them. And he just was, that'll do me. I'll, I'll be quite happy with that. He didn't want to do any more. And are we like that? To use this illustration, are we three-arrows Christians or are we five or six-arrows Christians? Do we take all the means of grace? It's a warfare, remember. Do we fight against temptation daily or do we just, no, I'm a Christian, I'm okay, that'll do me. Do we really believe in answer prayer? Do we pray on a regular basis? Do we daily depend on God's power or do we go for days without reading his word or coming to him in prayer? Are we really engaged in our Christian warfare or do we just think, that'll do, I'm a Christian. You know, I'll go to church, that'll be it. You see, or do we get, look at this say, I'm saved, that'll do for me. As shown in Joash's response, we don't expect much change in our Christian life. We don't make the effort to witness. We don't seek to deal with habitual sin and things that are compromising our witnessing. We only ever have a superficial grasp of God's word. We have an irregular and uncommitted prayer life. Are we make do believers? Are we just three-arrow Christians? In um, one of the books that uh, the pastor gave me on on this, there's Roger Ellsworth, and he quotes uh, a chap called Ronald S. Wallace in connection with this, and he says, the cure for all our shameful and self-centered half-heartedness in the church today Is possible if we realize that God never loses enthusiasm for his gospel and his cause. His fire never wanes. He never slackens or grows weary of his purposes. Because of this, he is always ready to kindle our cold hearts with new warmth and vision. And perhaps if that's us, we need to pray that God will kindle our warm hearts, our cold hearts into warm hearts and strengthen our love and our vision. Or if we turn to 1 Timothy, chapter 6, verse 12, very familiar verse. It says, fight the good fight of faith, lay hold on eternal life to which you are also called. and Confess the good fashion in the presence of many witnesses. So, as we seek, if perhaps if, as we, we read these verses and we, we think, yeah, I'm preciously following that sort of example of Joash. Let's encourage ourselves this evening with two things. First of all, mentioned it before. Uh, verse 16, put your hand on the bow, so he put his hand on it. Elisha put his hand on the king's hand. It's not just our hand, it's not just our efforts as Christians that's on the bow. It's God's as well. Let us pray to God for strength, let us rely upon him as he strengthens us from within. As Christians we have Christ within us. What a great promise. And the second one is something that we said earlier, that God is sovereign, he's all powerful, his power is unlimited. He can change us from within if we come to him this evening. He can give us victory in those areas of life that we're struggling and being defeated in. So we've looked at God's patience. We've just looked at God's power. I'm going to finish uh, this evening with God's prophet. You see, although it says in verse 20, then Elisha died and he buried him, you'd think, well, that's the end. (laughs) No coming back from that. But you'd be mistaken. We're going to now look at verses 20 and 21 before we finish. Now, as well as the Syrians, another source of um, aggravation and aggression and attack were the Moabites, the ones who the people of God tolerated in those early days and um, played a trick on them. And they let them stay in. But the Moabites were another source of aggression. So you've got this, basically, uh, a funeral cortege carrying a dead body along. And all of a sudden, on the horizon, they see the Moabites. And they think, well, we're not going to get very far running away from them if we've got to carry a dead body as well. So they look round and found a nearby grave. And it appears that probably what it was was that sort of a real rock. With, a, with linen over it. And the grave that they'd come across was, lo and behold, it was Elisha's. And in panic, they dumped the body in someone else's grave, and that someone else was Elisha. And it says, verse 21, so it was as they were burying a man that suddenly they spied a band of raiders, and they put the man in the tomb of Elisha. And when the man was let down and touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood on his feet. I don't know what would have frightened him more, the Moabites or this dead man standing up in front of them, revived and stood on his feet. Now, what's the significance of this? It very much reminded me of um, is it Hebrews 11 verse 4 about Abel. Even though he di- di- was dead, he still speaks. So what does this speak? Well, First of all, what it doesn't speak about is uh, the, the idea that um, something uh, belonging to a saint has some magical power. Um, when, when we were uh, young, we used to. Ha- uh, I was brought up a Catholic, to have probably told you num- numerous times, and we to have a, a cross, and you opened this cross out, and it had a piece of wood in it. And um, my mum said... We were told that that was part of Jesus' cross and it had special powers. Well, I remember going into a shop and saw about 200 of these and I thought, I don't think so. It's not talking about anything with a magical power. What's it talking about? Well, the third, I think it's, it's three significances from this. The first one is Elisha had died. That's why, and near to death, that's why King... Joash was so upset, he thought, that's the end for Israel. You know, we struggled a bit when he was alive and he helped us so much. But Elisha had died, but Elisha's God is still alive. See, the miracle of this man being restored on touching Elisha's bones wasn't, wasn't Elisha's doing. It was The miracle was God's, not Elisha's. So it was a message for them and particularly the believers at that time, to take heart and trust. Just because Elisha was dead, God had not forgotten them. God was still alive and working through his people. And God was still sovereign. The second thing is that the significance of it is it pointed to Christ's death on the cross we turn to John chapter 5 verse 24, we'll see this quite clearly. Most assuredly I say to you, as Jesus speaking, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come in to judgment but has passed from death into life. There is life through Christ's death on the cross. Christ rose again to conquer sin and death and hell. It was not the end. And Christ is still alive. He's not dead. And God is not willing that any should perish, that all should come in repentance and faith. So it showed that God was not dead. pointed to Christ's death on the cross. And I also believe that it points to something that's yet to happen, to Christ's second coming, when death will finally be defeated. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'm going to read from verse 25 to 26. For he must reign till he has put all enemies unto his feet. And the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. When the Lord Jesus Christ comes again, we shall all rise. We shall all have new bodies. There will be a judgment, but he will bring those who are his to be with him forever and ever. And we've said before that Elisha, said this many times, pastor said it many times, that in many ways he's a pointer to, to Christ. His final miracle after his death and it's strange actually with uh, Elisha that all his miracles are to anonymous people. The only person who was a, a recipient of God's working through Elisha that we know his name was was Naaman and he was a Gentile. His final miracle was after his death Elisha Whose life as God's prophet and servant showed the compassion, the mercy and grace of God. It also showed, such as in Naaman, the character of sin, how it cuts us from God. It shows us God's patience and power in forgiveness and changing hearts. So, as we consider and have considered the life of Elisha, let's not finish with Elisha. Elisha points. To our dear Saviour, who was to die on the cross, but was to rise from the dead. And through him, we believe we have everlasting life. Amen.